Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Department. I'm your host, Paul Jostino, and with me today is Course Director for the ACSC Leadership Course, Dan Connolly. Hi again. For today's podcast, we find ourselves navigating the transition from Phase 1 of the course on the ethical foundations of leadership to Phase 2, assessing self and organization. To get us started, could you give us your elevator speech version of how the link between ethics and the cardinal virtues and phase two's assessment focus. What's the link there? Yeah, good, Paul. Thanks Thanks for the setup on that. Pretty excited that we're at this point in the course. Uh, the point I'd like to make here, because I think it leads to our first discussion point in today's podcast, is that leaders need to consider purpose before they assess themselves or their organizations. I think that that's, that's something that's vital. Without this vital appreciation of purpose, skewed assessment is going to be the predictable outcome. It's interesting that we find the same truth in armed conflict. When we assess our performance in battle, let's say, if we don't know what we're fighting to achieve, we cannot properly assess in war how we're doing. I'm gratified that the students are going to have a lot of emphasis on this issue of wartime assessment during phase three of their IS-2 course that they'll take in the spring. That section of the course is chock full of great content on this notion of assessment. So speaking of purpose and the fact that purpose is so tightly linked to proper assessment, I want to turn the conversation to a discussion of Aristotelian prudence. So according to Aristotle, we know that understanding one's purpose is necessary to living well, and that means as a person and a leader too, and basically to achieving our interests. Aristotle's take on prudence, the virtue of wisdom, is the gate to this kind of living well. With the idea that leaders should seriously consider an Aristotelian approach to prudence, what can you tell us, Paul? in practical terms about this idea. He unpacks the concept of phrenesis or practical wisdom as containing three cognitive tasks. The first is sensitivity, which is not emotional turbulence, but intake of information from the world around you. So the the classic example of this is Socrates, when the Athenian army is routed at the Battle of Delium, and some of the cavalry aristocracy who can escape on horseback easily they see Socrates in the, the flood of refugees with his head on a swivel and his eyes wide, and he's self-controlled, he's understanding information, he's processing it, and he's deciding how to act when other people are, are fearful and have lost control of themselves. So sensitivity is, is taking in information. The second component and the third component are kind of linked. You kind of go back and forth between these two. Deliberation and discernment. Discernment is a categorization act. And Aristotle loves this as a a major part of his method of figuring out, you know, kind of putting things into boxes, tying links between things, uh, setting up a hierarchy. Deliberation is your alignment. And this is where purpose becomes important or your interest. How does your information about the situation and your ordering of that information relate to accomplishing your interest or accomplishing your purpose? So for Aristotle, The act of practical wisdom, of prudence, is assessing reality well in order to accomplish your interests through sensitivity, deliberation, and discernment. It's important to make the observation here that none of this is really outdated. 
when you catch up to modern disciplines like psychology, this is about sense perception. I mean, that relates very strongly to sensitivity. I even hear, uh, you know, inklings of uh, Boyd's OODA loop, let's say, in what you're describing. So there's a lot of contemporary and also military applications to what you describe. Observe, orient, decide, and act. I mean, the decision is is really the, the culmination of Aristotelian prudence. The other three steps lead to decision and action and then a new review process of how to continue adjusting to reality. Agreed there. Now I'm going to challenge you a little bit. What you've described sounds pretty good. It even sounds lofty. And the thing I'm going to challenge you with is the idea that, you know, we have to catch up to reality here. Um, Is the process you've described difficult or even impossible to achieve? Uh, You have to face reality at some point. And going through an extensive process of deliberating sounds like it's going to basically hang you up uh, in your attempt to achieve your interests. So how do you see it that Aristotle grappled with this notion of applying prudence to real living so that we can take action? Well, for Socrates, so much of, of wisdom is practicing so that when you come to moments of needing to assess and engage in a practical wisdom, prudence sort of task you've got enough things that click into place in a moment for you that you can reach a decision quickly, and, and that's why you practice. So the practice of running through these mental games, it's, you know, his version of, of prudence is kind of like wargaming. It is time and reflection, time and experimentation, time and hypotheticals to help make the transition to applied action smoother and more effective when it comes time for it. Yeah. So I, I hear in there, too, by the way, I think you're starting to preview phase three a little bit, which, you know, excites me. And why is that? Because what I'm hearing is you're suggesting that preparing for a crisis happens before the crisis. And that being ready for the crisis where you won't know those circumstances in advance, that practice piece that you're identifying sounds, you know, it sounds like it would really help to uh, get leaders into the right frame of mind seems that Aristotle had a way here, maybe it's not the best way, but it's a way, to adjust his understanding of prudence to reality. But let's face it, you know, he's not the only thinker out there who's trying to attempt to, to bridge this gap. I wanted to ask you, Paul, how does this approach of Aristotle's compare, let's say, to another prominent thinker who also grappled with this challenge? Let's look at Niccolo Machiavelli. You know, Machiavelli advocates for a type of, you know, a pragmatic prudence. And his argument is, is basically that he assesses reality better than Aristotle. And if you assess reality differently than how Aristotle assesses reality, you come to some different conclusions. And so I was really hoping that we could go the Machiavelli route today. So I brought a couple of juicy sound bites from Niccolo Machiavelli. Italian thinker from the Renaissance, a, a classicist a military commander himself, and a political philosopher. So he's a, a, an interesting Renaissance man. So I'll, I'll just throw out as a, as a first example. This is from chapter 18 of Machiavelli's The Prince. As long as it is possible, the prince should not stray from the good, but he should know how to enter into evil when necessity commands. What do you think of that, Dan? Interesting, because I'm hearing the action verb of deliberation in what you've said, which is starting to sound uh, quite a bit like what you proposed on Aristotle, is how he approached the problem. Also, the act of discerning 
we know that discerning is a key component in any understanding of prudence. But I wonder if there's something deeper here going on. Well, you certainly get to the idea of necessity. The question is, necessary for what? So Aristotle's for what is living well in a community living well. Machiavelli's in The Prince is attaining and maintaining and growing power for a ruler. And so their, their interest points differ markedly. And so perhaps it's you know, the point you're oriented toward that when you're assessing reality leads to different results. Okay. Uh, in a way, I see that tying right back to purpose. Yeah. Right? If you have a clear sense of purpose, what that purpose is should be guiding you at this point. So it seems that it's really that heady notion of ethics that if we can bring that to bear will help us to start to distinguish a little more from the, the more Aristotelian approach to the Machiavellian. Let me take us to another one. This is from sure. chapter 15. Machiavelli says, there is such a gap between how one lives and how one ought to live that anyone who abandons what is done for what ought to be done learns his ruin rather than his preservation. For a man who wishes to profess goodness at all times will come to ruin among so many who are not good. So for me, what I'd, what I'd take from that is, is basically it's a, a picket's charge sort of offense on the Aristotelian approach that it doesn't properly assess reality and recognize the badness of other people. And so it basically creates a scenario where in behaving well, you doom yourself to failure and destruction. Yeah, we see that same kind of approach to uh, philosophy through later years. We see, uh, for example, a thinker like Thomas Hobbes would reflect that as well. He says, look, I get the high ideals, but open your door. And how are people going to treat you and what's going to happen to you after you step out of your door? So, you know, we're hearing a, a kind of a strongly uh, voiced realism in that. Uh, and the really, I think the thing that we can maybe glean from this is that what Machiavelli appears to be proposing is what we might call a moving ethic. What do you think about that? I think, uh, you know, we call it situational ethics. It creates your system of alignment based on the situation only loosely tied to an interest that's based mainly in the self. And the Aristotelian ethic is situationally prudent, but ethically it's oriented towards some deeper foundation outside of the self. In empirical terms, you have to ask this question, is, is Machiavelli right that behaving good among bad people produces bad outcomes? I, I would suggest the empirical evidence is, is, is it's hard to make a determination on the answer there. Uh, and so picking a choice based on anticipated outcomes, part of our what we've been teaching in phase one is thinking about ethical reasoning, and, and it's really difficult to predict outcomes. And so thinking about the agent and about the rules and those sort of things may be the, the better course. Yeah. I'm also hearing a very important term that I think has been lurking in the background and the shadows in this conversation, which is about the issue of control. So what you're proposing, in a sense, is that at this critical moment in our thinking about you know, how to act you know, in the most effective manner, given the circumstances that we're in, how much of that situation do we actually control? How much do we don't? And I think that's a huge gateway into phase two, because that proper self-assessment should teach you, if you do it well, if you do it intentionally, should teach you about what are your limitations? What is it you can control and what you can't? Perfect. Yeah. So it's a nice tie-in to Socratic wisdom, the idea that 
I know that I don't know, that, that my knowledge is always imperfect. And that humility rather than hubris and thinking I know what's going to happen mm. actually makes you a better leader because you're, you have more wisdom. And so what we're basically saying is you need to do assessment. Your assessment will be imperfect, but you need to do it all the more because the more you try at it, at it although it will be imperfect no matter what, it still helps you to be a better leader. And this relates to something else. You know, I didn't bring in the full quotation, but it made me think of chapter 18. There's a passage where Machiavelli charges that it's better to seem good than be good. Yeah, that's a challenging idea. And those of us who've been led, you know, have a lot of opportunity to think about that. We've had leaders who have walked the walk um, and the talk, and we've had leaders that talked and maybe didn't always follow up that talk with their walk. And so consequently, often the judgment can be, at least in the immediate sense, sometimes those leaders who seem to be good can be effective. And I think really the question leads us back to a notion of purpose, right? And so certainly in the short term, that can be the case. I think Machiavelli is stressing that point, and that ought to give us some serious pause. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of our concerns in, in thinking about the courses is, you know, there's a lot of talk about being ethical, when you look at people who are demoted or lose their positions or these sort of things are, are censured in some way, the rhetoric about being ethical is outpacing understanding of ethics by a, a decent margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that's one of the concerns of this course is trying to make up a little bit of that ground. But to go back to the Aristotelian era or a little bit before him, you know, there, was a, there was a concern as Athens was facing defeat in the Peloponnesian War from some of these great philosophical minds, your Socrates, your Plato, your Thucydides, that all of this talk about virtues and ethics in classical Athens was a mistake. That in talking about the cardinal virtues and talking about ethics with people who were fundamentally bad and self-interested, you're actually equipping them with a rhetoric and an ideology to mask what would otherwise have been naked ambition. And that the Athenian Empire and its acquisition of power, realist politics, was masked by the ideology of of freedom and justice uh, and temperance. And so in that sense, you know, this is a, a, a moment of real doubt for Plato writing the perspective of Socrates. Is it worth talking about these things, or are we just making bad people better, rather than actually reforming them? You know, so, I mean, this is an important, you know, we're asking people to reflect in this course. Mm -hmm. Is the talk about the cardinal virtues and ethical alignment and these sort of things, is it something that is shaping them, or something that that, that is giving them a tool set for how to sound good, rather than be good? And Machiavelli might say that that would be fine. Right. Right. That's a fair, fair estimation. I think that probably uh, one of the important features at this moment is to is to take some time to reflect, not just on how we would choose to lead, but how we want to be led. What kind of a leader do we want over us? What kind of a leader brings the results that we're looking for both short and long term? and how that should guide our steps in our own development of our leadership. So I think we've covered a lot of ground. 
Uh, I want to suggest that one of the issues might be to solve that conundrum you've posed about too much talk of virtues, is that the more we talk about them, the more prepared maybe we need to be to check ourselves and do take a, a moment at the end of the day, sometimes used to be called an examination of conscience, and ask how we're truly living those things we talk about. Maybe an assessment, which is a nice tie-in to face, too. We'll be doing more assessment. And so you've got you know, this talk about virtues can either transform us or it, or it can be a tool for manipulation. And it's worth thinking about what we're doing with it. All right, I have one more Machiavelli passage I want to bring up, because this is not usual Machiavelli. It's from Great. chapter 5 of The Prince. Anyone who becomes lord of a people used to living in liberty and does not destroy it may be expected to be destroyed by it, because such a people always has refuge in any rebellion to the spirit of liberty and its ancient institutions, and neither time nor gifts dilute that spirit. The memory of ancient liberty does not and cannot allow them to submit so that the most secure course is either to annihilate them entirely or to go there and live as one of them. Powerful stuff. I think that's an appropriate moment uh, at which to wrap up the pod with that clear vision with the Machiavelli fixed on this concept of liberty. We've come a long way in our discussion and in the course. We just heard about two approaches to achieving our interests as persons and as leaders. We just heard about Machiavelli's realistic approach when she's proposing a pragmatic set of steps to achieving our interests as persons and leaders. As he said, I don't care about what people should do but about what they do. And his ethic, which we've called a moving ethic, is sort of based on that idea and that you have to judge primarily from the situation. We also saw a different approach, and that idea is that from Aristotle that maybe the ethic we need to focus on is immovable and that that should guide us. So I like to put that in practical terms and suggest that we learned from Machiavelli that he saw the ideal of a tr truly virtuous society, which is a compelling vision, and he agreed that it was best. His approach, though, there's an ideal, but let's get real. Then, in an argument for civic virtues daily practiced, in a transformative way, we hear an alternative approach that argues for striving for that ideal that basically says, bring the ideal into the real. Yeah, go... Go there and live as one of them. Right. That's a, that's a great challenge for us to reflect on, you know, is there an ideal, but let's get real, we can kind of discard this? Or are we to, to study the civic virtues? We heard that call from the Wood Auditorium uh, stage last week a couple of times, practice and cultivate the civic virtues. Is that the challenge? And even Machiavelli maybe is, is giving us a little bit of an endorsement for that path. So it's, you know, it's a great challenge for us to think about these things in phase two. Especially with all the bad actors that we keep focusing on that are just as real as they were yesterday. That's a great point as well. All right. Now, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll wrap up now. This has been another episode from the Leadership Department. 